Morning, fam. I haven't seen so many of you in person in so long. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't give a shout out to my pixie friend, Evie, over here. Uh, if you say hi to her after the service, she will bless you. Uh, one, of the, one of the biggest personalities for the tiniest human being I've ever met. But uh, she is awesome, Evie. She's ignoring me totally. Okay. Um, well, let me first start by just saying thank you. Uh, thank you to all of you. Whether you know it or not, you have been making a huge impact in the city of Peoria and the surrounding areas. Not just with the ministries that, are, that manifest here, but in supporting programs like Jolt Harm Reduction and Lula, uh, which we're going to talk about in a little while, and, and how that works out. Your, your time that you've given to prepare meals, uh, money that you've given, the use of the shuttles uh, have been, uh, well, I'm going to let Casey just speak to that in a few minutes. I'll introduce Casey to you in a minute. She is my partner in crime at Jolt. She's my outreach supervisor, and she's also co-founder of Lula Peoria, along with uh, another Imago and Jessica uh, McGee. So there's, uh, it's not all bad. Like, pandemic kind of stinks, but um, there's been some really great things that have happened. So if you'll go ahead and pull up the first slide there. Uh, we were in a meeting with Melinda and Elizabeth and uh, some others, and they were like, what are we going to do about Breakfast Club? And Elizabeth kept saying, well, like, like what about Breakfast Club 2.0? And I was like, no, that's too techie. I'm an 80s child, uh, latchkey kid, ate free lunches at school, government cheese, all that fun stuff. So uh, Breakfast Club 2, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> Who gets that reference? Four of you, great. Okay, uh, if you haven't seen Break Into Electric Boogaloo, Go Home, I think it's on Netflix, but it's one of the greatest films of all time. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola directed it. It's not, okay. All right, so let me, let me just start. If you go to the next slide here, we're going to do just a quick history of uh, The Breakfast Club. I will give you a warning. This is a PG-13. We're going to be telling some stories today, and the stories on the streets are pretty raw, right? And so I just want to give you a heads up. Um, I edited, my wife edited this so that it got the PG-13 rating and not the R rating or the NC-17 rating that I was going to share originally. So um, listen, go ahead and go to the next slide there. Our, our longest running outreach ministry at Imago uh, is the Breakfast Club. Uh, I remember meeting with Charlie Dean, the, the, the founding pastor of Imago, and uh, once we started coming here and hearing the story of how the Breakfast Club got started downtown Peoria out of just a small office, right? that there were a number of people, particularly on the weekends, when feeding sites were shut down, that, that were living unsheltered, they didn't have access to food, or were living with food insecurity. Um, and so this, this new startup, uh, Imago Day, started providing meals to folks. Uh, and it grew, and it grew, and it grew, and it, and it, and it really met this uh, really important need in the lives of folks, one of those felt needs, the survival needs that are so important. Eventually it grew, and as Imago moved from location to location, and finally settled here uh, at our University Gale location, uh, we have this great Parkview room back here where we were able to uh, invest in some, uh, some vehicles to pick people up from local shelters, from homeless encampments, bring them up here, and, and not feed them a meal in the sense that like we're giving charity to you, but to have a meal with them. See, it wasn't just, they were just participants that came and participated in this outreach program. It was a relationship-based, high relationship priority ministry that was focused on building friendships uh, uh, equally, right? That, that it wasn't 
us giving in that sense. Although we did provide a good meal, uh, and if you uh, have never been to a breakfast club meal, uh, it's like going to Bob Evans, but for free, right? Um, and so to be able to sit down with other people who are often disconnected from meaningful community and meaningful relationships and engage them while meeting a felt need, uh, it, it was really tremendous. It was very incarnational in the sense that when you went to the breakfast club, you could, you could sense the presence of Christ among everyone, right? And I think, uh, I, I can't speak for everyone who's ever been a part of uh, the breakfast club, but I can tell you uh, as a result of the work that I get to do today um, and that through the work that we did at the breakfast club, I think many of us would say that we've been more transformed uh, than maybe even the folks that we invited into our space by our encounters with them, Right? our capacity for understanding and compassion and empathy uh, and our capacity for patience and love has grown as a result of these types of ministries. So, again, years later, we, uh, we continued serving breakfast weekly but shifted our focus and our dreams to this ministry. We hope that when people enter the room each Sunday, they experience more than just a good meal. As they gather around tables, we hope our guests and volunteers are able to share stories and find friendship with one another. Next slide. And that was going along just fine enter COVID, right? COVID just destroyed everything that was uh, in many ways. And uh, can I just say COVID sucks? Yeah. My grandfather's 92. He's in a nursing home. He just tested positive for COVID. Uh, Fortunately, he's got the vaccine, and we think he's going to be okay. Um, But this thing, is it's it's out there. And given the work that we do in public health, Uh, we see the direct impact of that. COVID has infected roughly 40 million people in the United States and has taken the lives of nearly three-quarters of a million people across our country. That's just the United States. Besides the havoc the pandemic wrought on our health, it has disproportionately impacted vulnerable populations. And among them are folks from our breakfast club. While the virus has never really taken hold of those in unsheltered encampments, largely because of the good work from the health department, from Joel, from Lula, work that you supported, we've been able to prevent an outbreak among some of the most vulnerable people in our community. We have not had a huge outbreak of people among our unsheltered population because of that, right? Um, But it has had uh, some unexpected impact on our folks. So when I say vulnerable populations, what I'm talking about are older adults, people with medical conditions, people who use drugs, people living with serious mental illness, people involved in the sex work industry, racial and ethnic minorities, people with disabilities, and the refugee immigrant population in our area. These populations are more likely than not, or more unlikely to have access to resources that can help prevent uh, not just the spread of COVID among their populations, but, but a whole host of other uh, social determinants of health that impact them, right? And so um, I, I, what I would say about COVID, if you go to the next slide here, is it, my Harry Potter fans, right? Yes, it has been the great illuminator. That's what, I, that's what I think COVID has been. And what it's illuminated are all the gaps in services that exist that don't exist within our communities, right? And I'll give you just one of many examples of what that looked like. When we first enacted the shelter-in-place protocol last March, April, whatever, it's all a blur now, right? But last year, then the city shut down. Every building, every public building shut down. Nobody was allowed to be inside. What does that do to the homeless population? 
He gives them nowhere, right? There's no cooling centers. You can't go to the library and cool off. You can't go to Sophia's kitchen to get a meal. You can't use a, you can't use a bathroom. So you end up urinating or defecating in alleys or streets, which isn't just dehumanizing. It's also another public health risk for a hepatitis A outbreak, right? And it just revealed that our housing models were not really effective for reaching these 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 populations that are vulnerable. Our healthcare system and the disparities that were present there and then the panic that people felt about we don't know what to expect from day to day with the, un, with the unrolling of new information about COVID. Um, COVID illuminated all of that. And it was a little overwhelming. Um, to start, um, before we even officially partnered with, with uh, Imago here, it was Kay, she and I. And we were out on the streets and we worked through the entire pandemic. Um, when, when other organizations stopped, we felt a real burden to make sure that our people had access to the same resources we did to fight off COVID, right? And so we were doing mass distribution. We were doing hand sanitizer distribution. We were doing mill distribution. And that's, that's when we began to partner with other organizations because the need for food among a growing homeless population in Peoria grew exponentially. I think we went from serving, what, 15 people probably on a regular basis that were unsheltered with meals to over 150 daily um, in the wake of everything closing down. And for a small community-based organization, nonprofit like ours, with limited resources, that was really a challenge. The beautiful thing about that, though, is we, we have social media, right? So I was like, hey, we got a lot of people in the city that don't have food. Can you give us food? And the entire Tri-County area started sponsoring days of the week where they'd say, I'm going to bring you 150 meals. My family and my neighbors are going to do this, and we'll bring you meals on Mondays, right? And then somebody else or another organization would be like, we're going to bring meals on Tuesdays for you to distribute. And the response from the community was amazing, right? It's like, yes, this is what we're supposed to be doing, right? It's mutual aid in its purest form. Um, but as we kind of settled into COVID, uh, we began to realize that there are larger systemic issues that, that, are, that are impacting our folks as well. And so what I'd like to do um, is, is just tell you some stories about what that looked like over the last year. I'm going to invite Kay to come up here with me, and she's going to share some stories with me, uh, with us. You want to come on up? Bring your microphone there. Uh, Kay Shee is our outreach uh, supervisor. Uh, she's taller than I am. It's a little awkward. Um, and uh, I'm going to have her um, just start us off with a story. Now, we've changed the names. We've changed some details, mostly just to protect the dignity of the individuals. We have permission from them to share the parts of their stories, um, but... We also want to protect their, their anonymity as well. So I'm going to let you go ahead, take your mask off there, and, and why don't you go ahead and start us off. Hi, guys. My name's Keishi, and I have to give a huge shout-out to Mago and especially everybody that has helped with Lunch Bunch as it is now because my, my street family loves snack packs. Like, that is a fan fave. And those definitely, like, fill in gaps. It, it, it's a huge thing when somebody's hungry to be able to give them something. You know, you're having a really rough day, and you're hungry. So it's a, little things make the biggest difference. Out Let me here. say, uh, hungry stomachs have no ears. Right? So I'm, I'm the main outreach person, and the people Chris and I are going to be talking about, I, I love these people like my family. It's not some distant far removed love like this is Jessica and I and I know a lot of you know Jessica we we say street fam and they are truly our family 
and I am better for knowing and loving all of them. So we're going to start off with Travis, and um, he's near and dear to my heart. Everyone is, but he was young in a lot of different ways, and he called me mom. So this one might be hard for me. Bear with me. Try to do it first and get it out of the way. (laughs) So Travis was a 21-year-old who aged out of foster care and ended up homeless on the streets. He had never used any drugs besides cannabis prior to being homeless. He found methamphetamine would help him stay awake at night when he felt most scared and vulnerable. He soon found a substance that was laced with fentanyl. That was his first overdose. He survived that one. His substance use got a hold of him quickly, and he began engaging in survival sex in exchange for food, shelter, and money. As a result of his ongoing meth use, it exasperated his mental health issues, and he was in and out of Unity Point. The last time he was there, they had no beds available anywhere in the hospital. So they turfed him to a mental health hospital in Chicago, where they discharged him after a short stay directly to the streets. The streets of Chicago ate him alive, and his body was found in a tent. It was determined he had died from an overdose. I'm going to talk to you about our friend Grizzly. Grizzly was a crotchety old fart, but if he liked you... That was special. Uh, We first met him living under the 74 overpass encampment in downtown Peoria last summer. As we got to know him, we learned that he was living with HIV and had stage 4 cancer. He was eventually housed for a local housing organization, but he never really got the support he needed. We would stop by every day to make sure that he had food, mostly Keishi and and her crew of friends and volunteers uh, that that she worked with. Um, That, um, sorry, lost my train here. Uh, we'd stop by every day, make sure he had food that many of you prepared, and that he was taking his antiretroviral medication. She took him back and forth to doctor's appointments, uh, hospital visits, and provided what was basically hospice care for this individual. My outreach team would often have to strip his urine and and feces-stained sheets and replace them, help him get cleaned up, and get him set up for the rest of the day. Grizzly told one of my outreach team members that his plan was just to smoke crack until he finally died. With living, looking at stage four cancer, living with HIV, and, and, the, and the, the lack of resources available to him, he felt it would be better just to numb himself to the day-to-day reality. Um, and that's what he did. And, and there was something actually beautiful about that. He went out on his own terms. He determined. He had agency in his death. And probably with a life that didn't have a lot of self-determination. Um, he was a fan favorite of many of our folks from the homeless encampment, and those folks didn't know what to do with their grief. So we were able to work with a church down in the North Valley to host a memorial service at a local, uh, and, and his friends all came and honored him, many speaking very kind words about him while trying to choke back their own tears. That is Miss Evie. (laughs) Love you, sweet girl. So our next story is about Harley. And Harley was actually the first person on outreach that I 
truly, truly connected with, had a deep interpersonal relationship with. And COVID does suck, but it did put us in a space where our relationships with our street family became much more than transactional. Here's lunch, here's services. The most important thing we do is foster real love and relationships and give people humanity. Our people are so insulated. They only have each other. And I can't tell you how many of them have told me just showing up and listening to them means so much. And so Harley was, was my first deep, meaningful relationship. She was barely 18 years old. She'd been turning tricks for money and drugs since she was 13. She had a long history of sexual trauma, domestic violence, and was eventually turned out by her mother in order to feed her own drug habit. We found Harley on outreach to local motels and hotels. She was interested in getting condoms from us and had wanted to be tested for HIV. She invited us into her room and we provided a bunch of different tests. Fortunately, she was negative for HIV, but it was discovered she had an STI and hepatitis C. We tried to get her treatment for this, but her recovery would require a period of abstinence until the antibiotics kicked in. She started crying and getting worked up because she couldn't afford to not turn tricks because she would not be able to continue to afford the motel room she was living in. Plus, if she'd go bareback, which means without a condom, she would collect an extra $100 on top of her typical fee. Harley eventually moved to Bloomington, determined to make some positive changes when she abruptly decided to move to St. Louis. What nobody knew at the time, she was being groomed by a sex trafficker. Shortly after her move to St. Louis, she was killed by this person beat to death and placed in a suitcase. She was then dumped in a field in Southern Illinois. Her body was found a couple of months later by a young boy and his grandfather. There is so much evil and sadness in this world, so much desperation and so much grief. And we try as best as we can to hold space for that. Sometimes it can be overwhelming. Sometimes it can feel we are simply spinning our tires in the mud and getting nowhere, but... But there is good news. There is hope, right? I want to tell you about Kate, another young woman that relied on sex work as her primary income. When we first met her, she was sporting a black eye from her significant other. Still have the picture, right? She was using heroin uh, to numb herself to the horrible life that she, was, she had and that she was currently enduring. And to top it all off, she learned that she was pregnant with the child of her abuser. Desperate to begin engaging, uh, desperate, she began engaging in riskier behaviors and was eventually arrested and sentenced to drug court. It was there that she thrived. With a wonderful support system behind her, she got on Suboxone to address her opioid dependency and has not used heroin or other opioids in well over a year. She engaged in prenatal care, delivered a healthy, chubby, beautiful baby boy, has her own apartment, is working and just enrolled in school. I want to talk to you about, yeah, yeah, right? Um, I want to talk to you about, uh, this is the worst surname I could, or like nickname I could have picked because it's just Shaggy. We're going to call him Shaggy. Uh, 
Shaggy was a 73-year-old uh, registered sex offender. He had been homeless in Peoria for well over a decade. Um, prior to that, he served time in a small cell in the Department of Correction for decades. When we met him, he was living under an abandoned dock, uh, a loading dock near Zion Coffee. He and about three or four other men were living under this dock, and many of them had similar stories to Shaggy. See, Shaggy had been thrown away because of his crime. Nobody cared, nor helped. They just wanted him to stay hidden and not get in any more trouble. Finding housing for a registered sex offender is pretty difficult. There are a lot of barriers. And there's a, there's a fear of stigma, shame, and if, if I'm honest, there's a fear of reoffending. I got to know Shaggy very well that uh, last winter, two winters ago. I learned that he had spent most of his juvenile and adult life in and out of jail or prison, mostly for petty crimes. Most of them were survival. But being a black man, he had his fair share of run-ins with law enforcement. I learned that he was stuck in a grief cycle after one of his sons was murdered. That caused him to spiral into despair and alcoholism. As we were driving through town one afternoon, we found him walking to the local liquor store. He was usually kind and upbeat, but on this day he wasn't. We could see that as we approached him. We engaged him in some small talk. We gave him a few bucks to buy a steel reserve. And I asked him if he had any plans to see family for Christmas. And his response took me by surprise. His facial expression changed to serious and painful, and he looked me in the eye, and he said, fuck Christmas. Apparently, the holidays just remind him of everything he's lost, and that he won't ever get back. We gave him a little bit more money for some vodka this time. He just wanted to go back to his hole under the docks and drink to forget. Shaggy is now housed after a three-year battle of trying to convince him to engage housing uh, and, and he has been for several months now. He keeps his apartment clean-ish. Uh, often has friends over for drinks. Uh, he's very hospitable. Hospitality, he loves visitors. Um, and I remember him telling us one time, so Shaggy has this really deep, raspy voice, right? And he talks like this. He's like, where's that pretty blonde girl at? Right? Uh, you know, because when I show up, he's like, go away, right? Like, where, 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 where are all the nice people at? And I'm like, I'm just... What am I, chopped liver here? And he said, uh, he said to us, he's like, I don't know why I ever stayed outside. I'm never going back out there again. <laughs> right? But you got to understand something, too. The reason he never wanted to go inside was because he had been locked up for most of his life. He felt freer living under that dock than he did in his apartment. He has the greatest crap-eating grin, and his eyes light up when he sees a friendly face. When asked how he's doing on any given day, his usual reply is, well, the good Lord gave me another day. And when we say goodbye to him and that we'll see him tomorrow, his reply is similar. Only if the Lord gives me another day. This is innate sense of gratitude for every breath and every new sunrise he gets to see. No, and I'm just going to add that when we engaged him and he said it was a struggle to get him into housing, he told me in expletive-filled terms that he was never going to go inside, that he was going to die on the streets. And um, now we can't get him outside with a cattle prod. Like, he has a chair, he has a TV, a radio. And um, 
I'm like, you remember when you told me that you were never going to go inside? He's like, why did I ever say that? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. But this was a good choice. (laughs) So my last story is also, and I know I say everyone's near and dear to my heart, and they really are, but some, some people are just so special. All people are, but you know. So this story is about Charles. And he actually fell from a ministry position due to his drug use and subsequent criminal behaviors. Charles was released from DOC after a stint and asked to be released to Peoria so he could go to the Peoria rescue mission. He was determined to kick the heroin habit he had developed over the years, so much so that he worked with a prescriber to get on Suboxone. This medication helped him manage the intense withdrawals and cravings that accompany heroin use. This gave him the ability to look for work, not chase the dragon, and engage in programming at the mission. But due to the beliefs of Peoria Rescue Mission, they told him he didn't need medication and it wasn't allowed for residents of the mission, and that all he needed was to trust Jesus for deliverance from his substance use and dependency which is nonsense. He immediately, almost immediately relapsed due to withdrawing from the medication and the return of intense cravings for heroin. He overdosed within the first couple of days without medication and was kicked out of the mission for using drugs. When we met him, it was at the side of A to Z Pond. He was desperate, and that manifested in what looked like intense aggression. He begged us for help, saying he needed to be back on Suboxone or he would certainly die on the streets. I called our medical director, and she had him back on Suboxone. Charles still struggled with other drug use while living on the streets. He would get a job, work, experience a relapse, get back on track, volunteer on outreach through Jolt, relapse, hate himself for a bit, get back on track, find another job, and do more outreach. Each cycle of relapse became shorter as he learned to manage his emotions and his drug use. Each period of abstinence has increased in duration as well. Today, Charles is working, has his own place, keeps it very, very well still helps out at Jolt, and shares what he's been given with others in need. Often when our trans street family are in need of showers, laundry, and et cetera, he gives them a safe place. He's a magnificent person and one of my favorite humans. Thank you. Thank you. Those are just some of the stories, right? And, and there's, there's hundreds and thousands more out there that are undiscovered. Uh, and largely because many of the folks that we're talking about have been marginalized and pushed to the fringes um, and, and, and heavily shamed and stigmatized. So uh, rearing their faces in public can be a real challenge for them because of the, the fear that exists. If you go to the next slide here, though, is uh, we're going to talk about Electric Boogaloo now, right? So uh, if you haven't seen Break Into Electric Boogaloo, it's about community. It's about people coming together and breakdancing and stuff and building a community center and living life together. It's beautiful. It's, it's the gospel story, really. I never thought, those were words I never thought I would ever say in my life. That breaking two electric boogaloo is the gospel story. But um, <laughs> Listen, this is the power of community is what you're hearing. The difference between those last three stories and the first three stories we told was support. 
was relationship, was, was, was having people that wrap themselves around you and that walk through crap with you. And I can't help but think what would have happened to Travis if we had a, a larger network of people that could hold him down when we needed to, right? When he was getting out of control. Or that could walk him and make sure he got to his uh, doctor's appointments, his mental health appointments, right? But there's only so much. We all have limited capacity. And, and there's only so much we can do, right? But we see the benefits of what happens when somebody is surrounded. I think about Kate, the, the new mom who's working and going to school. She had so much support. And she's thriving because of it. The difference in thriving versus surviving is not willpower. It's access to support and resources. Right? Romans, um, go to the next slide here. Romans uh, 8, 39 says this. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angel, angels nor principalities, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This passage has always resonated with me, but it's taken on a special context in the last couple of years. See, this isn't just a description or a descriptive text referring to the all-encompassing love of Jesus. It's also a challenge to all who claim to follow his ways. That's the job description for being a Christian. It's a call for the body of believers to push back the gates of hell that are positioned to swallow up the vulnerable children of God. And it is our task, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to push back against death and principalities, our fears of the future or the traumas of our past, and everything and anything that stands in the way of God restoring humanity to, him, to God's self and to each other. This is what it means when we pray on earth as it is in heaven. If you can go to the next slide. So how can we do that? So let's just dream about what could be, what should be. The immediate future is uncertain with variants and pandemics and our economy and, and for a whole lot of reasons. But the Delta variant being one of them. This is preventing the Breakfast Club from continuing as it has for over a decade and COVID will radically and irrevocably change much of what we do and how we do it in the world. There are some things that won't go back to the way they used to be. So what could the Breakfast Club 2.0 look like? Well, let's just imagine for a minute that if the Breakfast Club were mobile. Imagine if we continued meeting the felt needs of people experiencing food scarcity, but also imagine if we mobilized and went out with the purpose of actually building the beloved community for everyone. Imagine if that group began partnering with other groups with a passion for the same kind of work that they do, and then they mobilized together with intention, sharing resources with anyone in need so that no one was in need like we see in the book of Acts. Now imagine if that, if that group of people who are driven and dripping with the love for each other and for the world, imagine people who are desperate and hopeless, being drawn to that community. Not marketed to, not coerced to join, not manipulated, but are drawn to it because of the dripping grace and love pouring out of its people. Imagine it growing organically because its love is so compelling and otherworldly. Imagine that same growing group of ragamuffins 
challenging structural and systemic issues that render people vulnerable and marginalizing the others. Now imagine that community and the earth being restored to the way God intended all along. Wholehearted, like, like Brene Brown says. If you don't know, I, gotta, I have to quote Brene Brown every time I get a chance to speak here. So that was a running joke for years. So listen, we're inviting everyone who feels compelled or called to chase after this vision, to let go of the way maybe we've always done things, and imagine what it could look like if the breakfast club leveled up. One of the ways this can happen is to partner with organizations in the area, continuing our partnership with Jolt and Lula and the work that we're already doing. And so I, I personally just want to invite you to join us in the ongoing development of the stories of people like we shared earlier. One of the ways we can do that is in September, September 17th through the 19th, we're going to have an intensive outreach volunteer training. It'll be over the course of three days. It'll be held here at Imago. Now, I think we all know the difference between having breakfast with somebody and doing outreach is significantly different. There's some core fundamental pieces that are there, but there are safety issues. There, there are cultural competency issues and cultural humility issues that need worked out. There are, are protocols and practices to decrease risk, not just to us, but to everyone else, right? But we need people who are willing to jump out there. One of my, uh, I can't believe I'm going to do this because this is so like typical of white Christian pastors, right? Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you a story from Lord of the Rings. Right? Okay. So Return of the King, right? Remember Aragorn? They were like him and Gimli and, and the other elf guy. Uh, they were, they were going to uh, go get the army of the dead to go like win the war, right? But in order to get to them and, and, and try to convince them to come, they had to wade into the place of darkness, right? And, and Aragorn was like, I'm going to go in there. Don't you go in there. And his friend's like, no, you're going to be killed, right? And he's like, I got to go. I got to do what I got to do so we can rescue all the people. And Aragorn and Legolas, that's it. Legolas was like, not without us. We'll go into the dark place together. And that has always stuck with me as a call to the church, right? We don't need to be in the light. <laughs> we need to bring the light into other places, right? And so I want to invite you. If you're just curious about ways that we can, we can continue the work that's already begun here at Imago and in our community, join us. Join us on the 17th, um, and, and just listen. You don't have to come back. <laughs> just come and join us, and see if that doesn't provoke your spirit to join us in that work.